Thank you, Lisette, for lifting us into heavenly places. Let's pray. Lord, we've been blessed to be here and worship you. And now, Lord, we desire to do that by allowing our minds and our hearts to be directed and impressed and convicted. We look to you, Lord, because there is an enemy that would seek to deceive, to discourage, discourage, and destroy. And so now, Lord, we're praying that you would drive back the forces of evil and bless us as a people. Make us effective for you through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, but may we be hid in you, thankful for our redemption and your ever-living presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. We put our lives in your hands now. Touch us and teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The news is not something that we find ourselves terribly edified by watching these days. And I want to assure you that some of the subject matter of this presentation will not be particularly pleasant to deal with. Having said that, I woke up on Thursday morning at 4.30 a.m., which is a good bit before I usually wake up. I couldn't sleep. And I was awakened with concern over the sensibilities of God's people relative to moral things. And I wondered how far past uh, the needle of black and white, right and wrong, we might have progressed. I spent the time in prayer and reflection, reading a little bit from Patriarchs and Prophets. And I stand before you this morning convinced that this discussion has to be had in the name of Christ in the path of salvation and redemption. Today is the Transgender Day of Vengeance. I couldn't make it up if I want to or wanted to. And there was to be a march today at the Supreme Court in the name of this transgender day of vengeance. There were some who were determined to go forward with it even though a transgendered individual so-called had gone into a Christian school in Tennessee and slain three kids and three adults. Someone with a little better political judgment must have done some real arm wrestling to convince them to call the day off. And yet here we are this morning in a society that's speaking in the terms of genocide for transgenders. Now, I want to remind everybody that the call of Christ was to love, to reach, to reclaim, to redeem. And I want to let everybody know that on the banner page of our website, there is a video that was just released yesterday by Little Light Studio that I hope everybody will watch multiple times. I've watched it twice myself. I also want to remind everybody at the beginning of this presentation that in the beginning, both Jesus said in the Gospels and it was stated by Moses through the pen of inspiration that he made them male and female. And while it wasn't enough in 2015 for us to legislatively, or I should say at least judicially, uh, 
established the fact that marriage is no longer between a man and a woman, it appears that with many Christians standing on the sidelines, the activist groups for these things have marched forward. And who would have known that just five or so years after that, we would see a completely coordinated tsunami of effort to sexualize our young people with an ideology that suggests that somehow they should go by their feelings relative to whether or not they were born in the right body or not. Now the problem is not so much in Christian culture when our children are little, because in Christian culture when our children are little, they're not steeped in these questions. But when our kids go on to college and university, there are some activists on our campuses that are pushing forward for this dialogue and taking advantage of the grave difference between someone who's 18 years old and somebody with an advanced degree and that without the ability to properly dialogue or controvert some of the cultural and not so subtle efforts. Now, while I think it's exceptionally important that we are thoughtful and kind to all people through all ilks of the spectrum of sin, the Bible does tell us to flee sexual immorality. And I do want to remind everybody, no matter how much a body is reshaped, some might say mutilated, every cell in that body still has an XX or an XY set of chromosomes. And I want you to know that the devil was not content to reconfigure the concept alone of marriage in 2015, June 26, I believe it was, when the Supreme Court gave a backwards affirmation, as it were, to the dynamic of what marriage is. But the devil continued on in his maddened rage to destroy as much of the likeness of God in the culture of America, in its homes and in its children as possible with the concept, what I will call a trendy fad of the idea that somehow I was born in the wrong body. And we've even developed terms that suggests that anything less than affirming that is wrong. And that term I'm thinking of right now is gender-affirming care, which really means protecting the right of a kid to make a decision that they're not able to make. Now, I've raised four children who are now all adults. And I just want to tell you that even after they were quasi-emancipated legally, and I say that that way on purpose because at 18, um, the world of psychology recognizes there's still many years of full development that are yet to come on. And our society has really kind of limited the maturational expression and development of our young people. But at 18, my young people that went on to college were able to choose what they wanted to study. But there was not a one of them that landed on what they wanted to do with their lives in the first semester or even the second semester and how many times they changed their idea about what their life was gonna be given to was multiple. The idea that somebody that was under 18 being able to decide about life-changing alterations to the body temple should be an affront to most people with common sense 
And yet it appears that many are too afraid to actually stand up and speak out of the history of the human race and common sense. And I just want to say to you that Jesus said in the New Testament that the generation of Sodom and Gomorrah would rise up and condemn Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And those previous generations need to be heard speaking loudly at this moment because we will not only be judged by the word of God, but we will be also judged by those who came before us. And the question will be asked, how come nobody spoke up or stood up to some of these concepts which would be difficult to reconcile with the most basic level of understanding? We had a television program that used to be called Ask a Fifth Grader or a Sixth Grader. I can't remember what it was. But for some reason now, we found ourselves painted into a corner, backed into a corner, as it were, relative to subject matter that is about the defacing of the moral image of God. And I would encourage you to go to the Ellen White website and put in the phrase, the moral image of God. We were not only made in the image of God physically, we were made in the moral image of God. Over 400 times, I think you're gonna find that phrase used. And today, it appears to me that is the difficult responsibility of this person and this pulpit to remind you that in the days of judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was such a colossal mess that you can barely stand to read the last chapter of the Holy Scripture that bears that name. But I'm here to express to you this morning that there is a way to love the sinner and yet still acknowledge that they are in sin. And if as Christians we are unwilling as parents and teachers and as members of this community to do that, we will be giving away, as it were, the cultural space in between the ears of our young people because they are marinating in it. They can hardly get away from it. It is in the animations and the movies and the cartoons. It's in the culture in such a way that it's almost impossible for Romans chapter 12 to come true, which is don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so if there's anybody here listening to me today who has a young person that is that they want to maintain and protect their freedom and their innocency, you might do well to consider a media-free life for them. And as we're getting ready to launch a ninth grade here in our local community with all the proper permissions eventually, these are the kind of cultural environments we'll be looking to create because when you're 13 or 14 years old, there's a lot of things you don't know about yourself. And finally, when you become an adult, you're at that moment of time where you're actually reflecting on who I am. But until you come to that place where your life is built on the solid rock and you've got enough maturity on your belt and you've lived life long enough, you shouldn't be allowed, let alone encouraged or protected from your parents in making decisions that you could regret. And by the way, there's a whole host of people called detransitioners out there right now that are angry over the fact that somebody actually let them make decisions they weren't prepared to make. So I wanna start this morning in a sermon I've entitled Transformed to remind you that the love of God reaches to the uttermost and the guttermost, whether you are a, whether you are a sold out addicted gossiper 
or someone racked in the ruins of bitterness and ill will, or whether you're addicted to pornography or concerned about something in your life that suggests you might have wrong attractions to other places. The law of God is still a perfect mirror that reveals the reality and it can't be contorted and turned into something else and it is still called the law of liberty. And if Eve wouldn't have listened to the snake in the tree, we would all be living under the very same law and it would still be a law of protective liberty. But today, the law points us to the reality, which is first, that God loved us and gave his son to save us and it's second, that we do need to be saved. And so this morning, we're going to do a little bit of looking at what it means to live in a modern age that has lost its way and is celebrating things that are self-destruction and, in biblical terms, abomination. Now, I want to say again, the word trans is an important word. Your Bible was translated. Reading that Bible, you know that you are a transgressor. And fortunately, reading that same scripture, you know that you can be transformed. And so this morning, I want to show you sexual sin in the Bible. I'll do it discreetly. And I want to show you transformation. And I, I want it to be very clear that in the modern Adventist world, I kind of hate to do this, but uh, just in the last two weeks, we've had some very interesting happenings in Adventism. We had a pastor in one of the northern German conferences who came out and declared himself to be bisexual. Unfortunately, most of his church was okay with that, and even his conference appears to have been with it for a time. The inter-European uh, division was not and posted something that you can look at. And then also recently, even as I was traveling in El Salvador, I was listening to a seminar put on by Washington Adventist University on human sexuality, and unfortunately, it believes there's a number of theological perceptions or perspectives relative to how human sexuality is defined. I need you to understand that the Protestant Reformation was built on the backs of the idea that the Bible could be understood by the ordinary person without knowing the original languages and that people surrendered their lives so that you could read it in German or English and then all the other versions that were developed. And when any belief system is in a position or a place where it cannot be explained simply and properly in clear accordance with the most readable and obvious understanding, you're now dealing with someone who's dealing in theological deception. And so in an age in which everything isn't always as black and white as we'd like for it to be, I do want to remind you that Jesus was watching over you when you were knit together in your mother's womb. As a matter of fact, he was the knitter. And most people go from an egg and a sperm through all the billions and trillions of replications of cells, and they come out wonderfully beautiful and uniquely different. And while there are a few medical anomalies at times that make that process not everything it should have been, for the overwhelming, statistically large majority, the miracle of going from egg and sperm to human being made either as male or female happens with wonderful intricacy and amazing delicacy and accuracy. However, when we look at what's going on in our society and we see the confusion that's creeping into our church, um, I want to assure you 
that it's important that you pay attention to what's going on. It's, it's not okay to watch things incrementally go the wrong direction. And for anybody listening to me that has a child that's college age, it's very important that you examine the culture of the programming and the intent of the college campuses that you're sending your kids to. Because they are very sensitive to peer pressure and the wide disparity between someone who has a PhD and someone who's just graduated from high school makes them liable to question all of the things that they were taught by their first teachers and their best teachers, which are their parents. And by God, because God said, the sovereign Lord has given me a tongue to know the word that sustains the weary one. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen. So with all of this general uh, statement of concern, I need you to know that in 1884, Ellen White wrote these words. She said, there is a spirit of worldliness coming into the church, and it must be firmly met and rebuked. If this is not done, there is a failure to make known the whole counsel of God. Unless we humble our hearts before God, unless we seek him earnestly, these next four words should sober all of us, we shall be overcome. We shall be overcome by the temptations of Satan and those whom we neglect to warn, to reprove, to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine will be ensnared by his devices. And the last line should make every parent, teacher, and pastor pay close attention. She writes, and we shall not be guiltless. So while reproving, correcting, and exhorting with all long-suffering, which was the admonition of Paul to Timothy, is not really... Um, part of the cultural milieu that we're living in, I want you to know today every happy, healthy family will require it, and it should be done with grace, but also with firmness. It must be firmly met and rebuked. Um, I'm also holding in my hands here this morning a letter that came from one of our union presidents uh, in the World Church after a very unfortunate event happened on a university campus outside of North America. And uh, it, it was to be read in every church, and it was an open rebuke to what actually took place on the campus of the, uh, the, the university. That It was a cultural event, and um, unfortunately, culture in the minds of an anthropologist is like the holy grail of goodness. But for Adventists, we know that culture can go very wrong. You know, there are cultures where our missionaries were, were killed and sometimes eaten. Uh, culture is not the holy grail of happiness. But if you're a secularist without that, and I would like to say, if perchance any uh, administrators were to listen to this sermon, that they still hold a pastoral responsibility to speak the truth, and they are pastoral administrators. And uh, to think that pastors don't do administration would be a huge problem too. Um, every pastor has to administer and that's where it gets kind of unpleasant at times. I've had to deal with people who are involved in all kinds of bad things. I've tried to do it redemptively, but it's everybody's job depending on the relationship you have. So if it's you parent, then it's you. If it's you, pastor, then it's you. If it's you, conference president, or you, union president, or you, division president, then it's you. And there's a lot more I could say here this morning, which I'm not saying yet, because I'm trying very hard to make sure that people do do their jobs 
and that it doesn't have to go before the entire church. But Matthew 18 does say, talk about it privately, then do it a little more publicly, and finally tell it to the church. And at this point in time in my life, I'm convinced that at some point in time, I will have blood on my hands if I don't do my job. Because information is power, and everybody should be able to make their minds up, and ignorance can be damning. So this morning, may the introduction to this sermon be whatever form of potential encouragement, exhortation, or potential rebuke that it needs to be. But I want you to know that on this day of transgender vengeance, Jesus is still there to transform. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them up to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we have a reminder not to go back to what we left behind. This was the problem with the Israelites as they left Egypt. They had become so accustomed to the culture that they really preferred returning over the spiritual rigors of growing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, the author says, Therefore, prepare your minds, gird up the loins of your minds, some of your Bibles might say, for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, understand you're aliens in a foreign land. By the way, most of the people Peter wrote to were living in societies that didn't hold the same value system. And what he's saying is, remember Jesus is coming. Don't lose your hope. May this be your constant sense of sobriety because the devil's trying to take from you what Jesus has paid and given you. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Now, lust is a bad word in the Bible. Lust is actually without hardly any real merit or meaning in a amoral society, in a spiritually bankrupt place, talking about lust has become inappropriate. But lust, I'll talk about it in the terms of human sexuality and gender this morning, which it is bigger than that, but it certainly includes that, that lust is something that is not to rule our lives. And if you're listening to me here today and you're involved in pornography or you're involved in any other sexual aberration, I want you to know you can be transformed. And I'm going to show you how to live transformed. And I'm going to use a very wicked woman who became a very good lady to do it. And I'm going to center it all in Jesus. But I want you to know we are to move away from those things that were left behind. And if you're secular... If you're ignorant and if you don't know, I want everybody that's in that position and has never heard this before to know there is a Savior. He has nail prints in his hands because he was hung on a cross to die to pay the price for our sin and to redeem us from slavery to wrong thinking, wrong living, and wrong acting. But we are not to be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, Jesus, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now I need you to know something. After 38 years of marriage, I am so thankful for a faithful wife and I'm sure she's thankful for a faithful husband. It's beautiful. And I want you to know that the path of holiness where you tell the truth and you think good of others, and you restrain yourself from evil, from violence, from theft, from murderous intent. 
where you actually honor the creator God as you've taken his name. You remember what he said in his word. This is the beauty of holiness. It is a narrow way. Jesus made it narrower by reminding us it's not just the written word. It's the principle. It's the heart. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he went over that. If you hate somebody, if you lust after somebody in your heart, he made it clear that it's actually about the regeneration on the inside, which evidences itself in different behavior on the outside. But I do want you to understand that we are to be holy as he is holy in all of our behavior. And anybody who suggests to you that being holy in your behavior is legalism is ignorant of the scriptures and might fall into the category of verse 14 who is ignorant and has gone back to the lust of the, the flesh. All right, take your Bibles now if you would and turn over to James chapter one, just a few chapters back. In the book of James, we have a reminder that there is a law which is a mirror. And that mirror is to show us What's going on? The other day, I took a large mirror into the church school. I had my hair messed up and some food on my face. And as I walked by one of the first graders, they kind of looked at me and touched their face like something's wrong with Pastor Kelly. Something was wrong with Pastor Kelly. And uh, I reminded them that if they got up and started their day without looking in the mirror, they might look like me. And you know, the mirror is not the agent of cleansing. It's just the agent of revealing. And as I shared in a prayer meeting about a month ago, you don't take the mirror when you see you've got something on your face and rub it on you real hard. No, you don't do that. But the mirror does give you liberty from being in ignorance or darkness about the real estate of who you are. James chapter 1, verse 23. Well, we'll start at verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word. Well, who are we proving ourselves to? Well, to the unfallen angels who are wondering if we've been redeemed, and per certainly to the skeptics and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, there is the potential for a Christian to be deluded. And I true actually do believe that there are many that are living in delusions right now because according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they have not loved the truth. And so the Satan handcrafts a customized delusion for them. Verse 23, For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, that's behavior, by the way, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he's looked at himself and has gone away, he has immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But, verse 25, anyone who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that's behavior again, friends, this man will be blessed in all that he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, that's doing, that's behavior, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. In other words, religion changes you. It changes the reality of your being, your heart, your nature, and it changes the outgrowth of those things, which is your behavior, your words, your actions, your thoughts. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, there's the compassion, and to keep oneself unspotted or unstained from the world. Paul will remind us there's no combining light and darkness, truth and lies, error and belial with what is honest and true. So this morning, I think it's very important that we understand the simplicity of the gospel is transformation of life from the inside out. Now take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
we have part of our scripture reading from this morning. And I want you to notice something in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you might not have noticed when you did the scripture reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, there was probably no more wicked city in the Roman Empire than Corinth. It was a seaport with ports on both sides of the city. It was on a narrow isthmus of land, a narrow tract of land, and they would sometimes roll the boats from one part of the Aegean over to the other. And it was much work, but it saved a lot of time. But imagine having a city with two ports in it. It was a wicked, wicked place. And just a precursory reading of First and Second Corinthians would give you a little bit of an idea of that. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, that's dealing with both a spiritual reality and behavior because righteousness is also right doing, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived. Now, I want you to notice what's in the rest of verse 9. Neither fornicators, that's sexuality outside of marriage before there's a marriage, nor idolaters, and you say, well, Pastor Ron, what's that one? Well, I want you to know that the Pastor Paul, the Bible writer, will include the idea of sexual immorality as idolatry. But I also want you to know that in all the pagan temples, cult prostitution was a mainstay of worship. All right? So it's pretty gross. Don't want to go into the details, but this is a fact. All right? So most idolatry in the age of Paul led you to a temple where very vile and debauched things were going on. Nor adulterers, okay, so that's breaking vows in a marriage immorally, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals. I want you to see that every one of these five things has something to do with sexuality. Now, there are a lot of other things that could make it onto the list, but for some reason, in an immoral town, in an immoral place, and in an immoral time, he chooses to make sure that we know that unrighteousness and immorality are a big deal. And the bad thing about immorality is that the addiction of immorality is not an addiction you can run away from the same way you can run away from shooting up with drugs or huffing, all right? The problem with sexual immorality is that it's a disease between the ears affected by what comes in through the eyes and what is touched. And the problem with it is that it is also a natural appetite which properly contained, constrained, and committed to is beautiful, wonderful, and bonding. Now, in a secular society, we'd like to make sexuality amoral. We'd like to make it sterile. It has no real effect. And the one thing you don't want to do is repress somebody. So abandon all that construct of, of morality. And if you're ignorant, like Peter talked about, then you don't know that God created this as a special gift to be shared in a very unique, special, private way by two make, people who make a very special commitment. You don't understand its power to bond. You don't understand its power to actually explain one of the most awesome dynamics of unity that can exist. Uh, and for the Christian, the idea that a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man and God's at the center is a little reflection of the Godhead. It's a little reflection of the Trinity. So there should be no surprise that the devil's 
put the crosshairs first on marriage, and now he's going for a much more elemental, cutting off, as it were, the knees, the last generation, so that they're actually bound up to where their thoughts are only evil continually. And, and this is what happens when the genie of premature sexuality comes out of the box. And this is what happens when you can have vicarious um, sexual interaction off this little screen. If this thing gets out of control and runs you, it will ruin you. It will rob you of eternal life. It will rob you of the ability to truly love. It will rob you of the ability to be free. Because it is, as it were, um, it, it's a monster if it's put outside its proper constraints. Whereas it's an amazing majesty of togetherness when it's inside married love. But let's not leave off the other things on the list. Nor thieves, verse 10, nor covetous or drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So half of the list is clearly dealing with human sexuality. Verse 11 says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our Lord. The short version for what he just said is, you were transformed. And that transformation is for all of us. Now, the problem is, if you live your life with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, but not really even in Christ, you can never be transformed. And I want everybody to understand the price of transformation is a wonderful, beautiful differentness that some people will be amazingly attracted to and some people will hate. It was that way with Jesus, it'll be that way with you. But being set free is what the gospel does. It transforms you from being a slave to your own self, which in its worst form we call addiction, to being a bondservant, one who willingly gives himself to Christ and lives by love which is the ultimate freedom. Every bird that sings, every sunset you watch, every hand that you hold, every cheek that you kiss, if you're a mama or a papa or in a proper relationship, it's all an amazing statement of the glorious goodness of a system that God set up that functions beautifully. And the beauty on the inside matched with the beauty on the outside is a little taste of heaven. Now, I want to show you a woman that I believe the genie got out of the box very early in her life. Take your Bibles and turn over to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, this story is recorded in every single gospel. Now, you know there are the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all tell basically the same stories. And then there's the unique gospel of John. So when a story actually makes its way into all four gospels, it's a very, very important story. And in Matthew chapter 14, we have the story. It's the story of Mary Magdalene, although we don't know that when we read Mark chapter 14, looking at verse 3. It says, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon, the leper reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, pure nard. And she broke the vial and she poured it over his head. But some were indignant, remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. That's a little detail that some of the other gospels don't give. She could hear them, the rest of the gospels tell, but they were actually scolding her. Verse six, but Jesus said, let her alone. And why do you bother her? 
She's done a good deed. Now, verse 7 is super important to a sermon that's held on the trans day of vengeance and is about transformation because it's the modus operandi that the devil works with. Jesus said, for you always have the poor with you and wherever you wish, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. Now, in this discussion with those of the LGBTQ community, there is always this sense that anybody who does not affirm their new self-chosen, self-felt, and self-affirmed identity is somehow a hater, somehow doesn't love them, and isn't being nice. And what I want you to see here is that when Judas started this scolding, which the Gospel of John will tell us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written while everybody's still alive. So all the story names aren't told. But by the time you get to the 90s of the first century, everybody's dead. And John will tell us that Mary, the sister of Martha, is the one who was breaking the vial, and Judas was the one who started the rumor. And Judas does what Satan does. He takes a legitimate byline, which is, this could have been used for the poor. And he attaches a criticism of Mary, and it's really also a denigration or a downgrading of Jesus. And Jesus has to say to them, now listen, you're always going to have the poor, but you're not always going to have me. And he tells Judas, leave her alone. He confronts Judas. Judas is so angry, he leaves and goes and makes the betrayal deal against Jesus. But what I want you to see here is that you've got Simon, named in Mark, named in Luke, and you've got Mary Magdalene, who's sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, and niece of Simon. Now, let's turn over to the Gospel of Luke, if we could do that, chapter 7, and let's get one part that the other Gospels don't give us from the story of Luke. In Luke chapter 7, we have this part of the story that we just read in three verses. And then we get a lot more that's not anywhere else. So I'm going to skip the three verses except verse 39. So verse 37 through 39, I want to get verse 39 in because it tells you what Simon was thinking. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him, that's Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, so he sees and he smells what Mary Magdalene is doing. If this man were a prophet, now, you have to remember, Jesus healed Simon of leprosy already. Okay, so I'm putting a lot together that you can study out and see. But Jesus has already healed this man. But I want you to see what the untransformed heart thinks like, and this is what's happening. Luke is recording his thinking, which he must have confessed somewhere down the road. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, I'm letting you know that uh, this happens to be Mary Magdalene. She is, according to the Desire of Ages, a niece of Simon. And Jesus does know a little bit about what's going on. As a matter of fact, Jesus knows Simon's thoughts. Verse 40. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other only 50. When they were both unable to pay, he graciously forgave them. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, now I want you to see Jesus looking down at Mary who's crying tears of happiness and sadness at the idea 
that her Savior is going to die. She's the only one who gets it. Nobody else has gotten it, but she gets it. And there in that room where the, the smell of spikenard is mingling with Sabbath lunch, there is this uncomfortable moment. And Jesus has confronted the host. And now looking at the offender, so-called, he says, do you see her? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my dirty feet. And you did not, did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say unto her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now, you have to do a little bit of theological reflection here, and you have to be open to the idea that the remnant church has not only the commandments of God that it lives by, but it also has the prophetic gift of the testimony of Jesus. Now, I think we could establish simply by theological logic and reason that if Jesus turns to Simon and he talks about needing two people needing forgiveness, that at least Simon needed some. And that the messaging to a man who was condemning someone that was already forgiven was that you need to be forgiven too. And that the transformation of the woman was the needed transformation of the man. Now, the question that remains is, which one of the two, the greater debtor or the lesser debtor, is Simon? And this is something I want you to think about. Now, I'm categorically convinced that Simon is the greater debtor and Mary is the lesser. Because this woman is in a very disadvantaged position somewhere in the middle of her life because of this man. Now, I want to read just a little bit out of the Desire of Ages because it's there that we get just a little bit of insight behind the scenes of what the Bible lends itself to if you read a little bit between the lines. This woman, Jesus said, that wherever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, what she's done will be spoken of for a memorial. And looking into the future, the, the Savior, this is Desire of Ages 563, spoke with certainty concerning this gospel. It was to be preached throughout the world, and as far as the gospel extended, Mary's gift would shed its fragrance, and hearts would be blessed through her unstudied act. Kingdoms would rise and fall. The names of monarchs and conquerors would be forgotten. I mean, this is big stuff. But this woman on a Sabbath afternoon breaking open this one bottle of perfume, her deed would be immortalized upon the pages of sacred history, which means in eternity. And until time should be no more, that broken alabaster box would tell the story of the abundant love of God for a fallen race. Now, in the Gospel of John chapter 8, there's a story of a woman caught in adultery. She's not named either. When that woman is done shivering and shaking from stress and all of her oppressors and condemners are gone, Jesus turns around after he's done written their sins in the sand and says to her, women, where are your where's your condemners? And she is now breathing such a sigh of relief, she says, I don't have any. 
And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. However, Jesus doesn't leave the definition of right or wrong up for discussion. He declares that what she did was wrong, and he states, go and sin no more. Now, sin is very important to the gospel because without sin, there's no need of a savior. And when people won't look in the mirror, they don't need the cleansing agent of Christ's blood spilt for all the world, demonstrating to all the universe what a good God we serve. But Jesus didn't come here just to cleanse records and leave lives unchanged. He was the God and remains the God of transformation. And this morning, I want to assure you that this woman was changed in that moment. As a matter of fact, Desire of Ages, page 462, says this. This was the beginning of a new life, a life of purity and peace. And by the way, they go together, friends. Devoted to the service of God. In the uplifting of this fallen soul, Jesus performed a greater miracle than in healing the most grievous physical disease. Now, I want to ask you, in the days of Simon, the former leper, what was the most grievous physical disease? I want you to know something. The spirit props in the Bible are woven together in some pretty unique ways, if you care to put a little prayer time on your knees and a little thinking under your hat. Here we have a woman who's being cured of something even greater than the most grievous physical disease. She... The writer goes on to say, he cured the spiritual malady which is unto death everlasting. Now, I'm about to combine some things that are going to make you do some serious thinking. And you don't have to be absolutely convinced that everything I say, you get to talk to God about it, search it out yourself and see. But I want you to know something. When we're stuck in sexual sin, it is a grievous spiritual malady. And that which was designed to be beautiful and celebrated inside married love is designed by the devil to destroy and deaden and keep us outside of the receiving of the eternal inheritance already paid for and purchased by the blood of Jesus, God forbid. And here we are in a society supposedly celebrating themselves and in reality they're bonding themselves and driving the happiness and the hope. We were made in the image of God morally and physically and restoring man to the image of God morally is the call of the gospel. But you can't do it when you give the wrong kind of affirmation to somebody who doesn't understand, who is living in a form of ignorance. This woman caught in adultery is called penitent in the Desire of Ages, page 462. This penitent woman became one of his most steadfast followers. With self-sacrificing love and devotion, she repaid his forgiving mercy. Now, you make your own list of his most devoted followers. But if I had to put one on my list, the one that would be at the top, is not Peter, James, or John. It's not Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. It's not the other nine disciples. It's the one that was there at the cross to the end. It was one that was there at the sepulcher on Sunday morning. It was the one that's identified in the Bible as this woman we call Mary Magdalene. Is she the one caught in adultery in John chapter 8? No way to prove it, friends. But all of the intimations, all of the clues say probably. Now, Let's go back to that John chapter 12, Luke chapter 7, Mark chapter 14, Matthew chapter uh, 26 or so, I think. So this man, two debtors, 
I want you to know, desire of ages, this is what is said. Simon had led into sin the woman he now despised. Oh, it's a tight little circle. What do we have to deal with here? A woman who had seven demons cast out of her. Were they seven at once or were they seven over a period of time? Who knows? But God can do it either way. Glory, hallelujah. And the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter how far you've gone down the wrong road. It doesn't matter how potentially confused your emotions, your hormones, or whatever else might be. The truth of the matter is that Jesus remains the God of transformation. And I just happen to think that as detrimental and deadly as the sins of sexual addiction are, that Mary Magdalene probably had to face off with her past seven different times. And the final solution was, wherever Jesus was, she was. And this is how she stayed clean. Which is why you can't afford to get up and go into a day without looking in the mirror and hearing the gospel story of a transforming Christ. This is why you can't afford to skip church or Sabbath school. This is why as the end of the world is upon us, you throw yourself into the goal of giving the world the message in this generation because it's impossible for the, for the garbage to stick while the fountain is flowing. Try to put duct tape on a wet surface and you'll see what I mean. The way we stay clean is we stay close to Jesus. And you can't do that if somebody's told you that what you're watching's okay and what you're listening to is okay and your laziness and self-indulgence is okay. Oh no, friends, you'll never be healthy and clean that way. Cleanliness comes from walking next to the master, sharing his yoke and calling out your praise whenever you can, wherever you can, with as many others as you can. You see, friends, the transformer still lives. Jesus still lives saves. And we cannot cloud the understanding of where the lines of right and wrong are. Now I'm here to tell you, when Proposition 3 was being voted as a constitutional amendment, the enshrinement of a woman's right. You know, if I were to run into a pregnant lady and she die, I get charged with a double homicide. But if she wants to have an abortion, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the, the logical inconsistencies are huge. What I need you to know is that Proposition 3 was fought primarily by the Catholic Church. All right? And what I need you to know, holding in my hands right now, is that the legislature of the state of Michigan is passing civil rights protection for the transgender community, and they're doing it without any exclusion for communities of faith. And I just want you to understand, the group that's fighting it first and foremost is also, again, the Catholic Church. Now, praise the Lord for those Catholic people who understand what morality is and that they're willing to stand up. But what I want you to know is that the devil isn't going to give a special pass to our schools, elementary, academy, and college. He's not going to give a special pass to our homes. He's not going to say, oh, they're Christians. Leave them alone. Oh, no, no, no. When a, when a man cleans his house out, seven more demons come back looking to see if the door's locked. And I want to tell you something. The Bible says flee sexual immorality. Flee where, friends? Flee to Jesus. Flee to the cross. Come to the transformer. Give yourself completely away in following Jesus. And you know, like the video I mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to mention it here at the end. Be sure and go to our website today. 
And click on and watch the video that's posted there. It just came out yesterday. I've watched it two times. It's being watched by thousands of people in just the few short hours it's been out already. And listen and arm yourself to be able to talk kindly, compassionately, reasonably relative to these issues. Now listen, I'm going to end where I started. I raised all of my four children to be hardworking, God-fearing, parentally revering, church-committed young people. Whether or not they've embraced that, that's their choice. In varying degrees, they all made different decisions that way. But I am going to say this to you. By the time it comes time for you to send them off to a college, you better know what college you're sending them off to and that the culture and the values and the mores of that college reflect what you taught them when they were a little primary or a little pathfinder or adventurer. You better make sure that there's nothing going on in those schools that are working contradictory to what it is you instilled through years of values with pathfinder leaders and church school teachers. And you better make certain that you follow Matthew 18 and speak up when you need to speak up because the end, or I should say the beginning of Matthew 18 is this. If anybody causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better, Jesus said, if you went and got a millstone, tied it to your neck, and jumped into the sea. Our kids are not ready to face off with the tsunami of immorality that's washing through our society on our phones, in textbooks, sometimes even on our college campuses. And I'm here to tell you today, there is a God who has called people like me and people like yourself to recognize that every man's starting to do what's right in their own eyes and that the worldliness that's found in the church must be met. You know, Ellen White had a vision years ago. She saw a colossal challenge coming to the church and it was done in the metaphor of a ship and an iceberg. And when it was clear that something was gonna happen, she said to the one guiding the ship, she said, meet it. And the ship rams the iceberg, which is his only chance of surviving. We are living in that age. What I'm telling you, 2015, when gay marriage was affirmed, is nothing compared to what we're facing now. There's almost nothing left. Made in the image of God, male and female, is what's under attack. There's almost nothing left. The Sabbath and the faithful children of God are next in the crosshairs of evil. It's now time to be holy, for I am holy through the holiness of the indwelling Christ. May God help us. And I encourage you again for the third time, watch the video. It's good Sabbath afternoon viewing. Let's stand for our closing song.